This is Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices episode 205 was recorded on February 6, 2020. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices is brought to you by TopTradersUnplugged.com, a podcast dedicated to quant and rules-based investing, helping investors overcome behavioral biases. As the NCOV coronavirus story continues to dominate the headlines, we're bringing back petroleum geologist Art Berman as this week's feature interview guest. We'll review the recent moves in both oil prices and time spreads, which often reveal what the smartest traders are thinking about the direction of the oil market. We'll also have an update on the comparative inventory yield curve. But wait, there's more. Macro tourist blogger Kevin Muir will join us in our post-game segment when we'll take a deep dive on Tesla's epic parabolic rise and blow-off top. Is it too late to trade this move? Let's see what Kevin has to say in the post-game segment. And I'm Patrick Serezna. Now, Eric, the S&P 500 obviously looked last week like it was uh, ready to continue correcting lower. And then we have a face-ripping rally taking it to a fresh high. What's your take on all of this? Well, Patrick, on Wednesday morning, I tweeted that the coronavirus is a contender for the most mispriced risk in the history of financial markets. Obviously, that's at least a slight exaggeration, but I don't think a a huge exaggeration. Now, to be clear, there's lots of people who disagree with me. There's a lot of people who are saying this is just a seasonal flu and no big deal. I, I don't think they've done their homework, and I don't think they're paying close enough attention. To be clear, we do have some good news since last week with respect to this pandemic. Specifically, it looks like there's good reason to conclude that the fatality rates may be lower than we first feared. But there's also some not so good news in this market, which is this virus looks to be even more contagious than previously thought. Now, what we didn't know when we had Dr. Chris Martinson on the show last week is that the China Academy of Scientists had just published a paper that just came out the day of our show last week. Dr. Martinson published a video the next day, which I recommend watching. It was titled, Why the White House Just Declared a National Health Emergency. And it explains the China Academy of Sciences study, which concludes that the r naught for coronavirus could be as high as 4.08. They also went on to say that it could be just as fatal as the SARS virus. However, Dr. Eric Ding, a very well-respected Harvard epidemiologist, very quickly came on Twitter and said, wait a minute, I agree with them, and their analysis looks very solid on the r naught, and that's a scary number. But he thinks there's a lot of good reasons to discount count the fatality rate, which that particular study had estimated about six and a half percent. So putting this all in context, Patrick, I think the really big event which propelled the stock market much higher this week was news about supposedly there being a cure in the works. Look, that's wonderful news. 
and certainly a combination of uh, a vaccine maybe being under development and closer to being developed than we had previously thought and a lower fatality rate is fantastic news for humanity. But with respect to the global economy and markets, we're still going to have a pandemic. And it looks to be very, very clear now. And it's not just Dr. Martinson. It's a lot of mainstream scientists coming out and saying, really looks like the cat's out of the bag. And this thing is going to go global in terms of a pandemic. Maybe it won't be as deadly as we first feared, but it still has the potential to overwhelm hospitals. And it still has the potential to cause a massive, massive slowdown in global trade and particularly in global travel as people are concerned about contagion risk. Now, what's really important to pay attention to in Dr. Martinson's video is the conclusion of that study, which explains why China is taking the steps that they've taken to quarantine entire cities. It has to do with basically the only way to contain this very, very contagious virus is to shut things down so that people don't have interaction with other people for several days so that you get ahead of the incubation period of this virus. And that's the reason we're seeing China shutting these entire cities down. Meanwhile, there have been lots of reports coming out suggesting that the numbers in China are much, much higher than what's being reported. So look, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't claim to have any real knowledge of where this is headed in terms of its death toll and so forth. But the market is acting as if the whole thing has blown over just because somebody's working on a vaccine. We're still going to have a pandemic that's going to affect global trade and global travel dramatically. So I think it's very underpriced, Patrick. Uh, I use this as an opportunity to roll my puts up to the 3,200 strike from the 3,000 strike. And what's going to be important to watch from here is the ex-China data. In other words, this is broken out in quite a few countries around the world. The case counts are still very low. Really, really good news here. We were seeing as much as a 40% per day increase in the Chinese case. Count. It looks like the ex-China case count is growing at only about 10% per day. But hey, it's per day. 10% per day exponential growth is still a really scary number. There's also new data that appears to suggest that Asian men over 50 are much more susceptible to this virus than people with other racial backgrounds. Now, this is way beyond my pay grade to understand the science of it. It has to do with something called ACE2, which has to do with how the virus gets into the cell and so forth. For some reason, Asian men over 50 are more susceptible than other people are to it. That's bad news for Asia, but potentially a sigh of relief for the West. Bottom line, though, it's breaking out maybe instead of a 40% per day case growth that we saw for a while in China, it's only going to be 10%. But 10% per day is still a geometric progression of case count. Hopefully it will be less deadly than feared. That's wonderful. But even if it's not deadly at all, if you have a massive pandemic that's growing in case count at 10% per day, it's going to affect global trade and it's going to affect airline travel dramatically. And the market's acting as if nothing's wrong and it's all better. And that's stocks. Now, copper and crude oil, they're on a completely different page. Copper and crude oil have sold off dramatically and they have not recovered to all-time highs the way the stock market has. So uh, we'll see what happens. I suppose it's possible that part of what's driving the market to new all-time highs is President Trump 
Trump's acquittal. Uh, I think that that outcome was well known before the trial even started, so I don't think that's very important. What I do pay attention to, as I've mentioned in past episodes, is watch the reaction in terms of how the people who don't like President Trump react to this acquittal. Are we going to have social unrest, or are people going to continue to go about business as usual? I think that's an important signal as far as what could be coming when we get to the elections in November. But as far as this stock market's concerned, Patrick, I think it's crazy. I'm rolling my puts up to higher strikes. Perhaps I'll be wrong. Seems like everybody else thinks the the whole coronavirus has blown over. I'm afraid that I don't think so. All right. Well, let's move on to the U.S. dollar because U.S. dollar is edging toward 98.50 on the upside. But more importantly, the euro that we've been watching is cracking that 110 support line that's held it for many months. Uh, What's your take on the dollar here? Is this breakout for real? I think it's very much for real, and I think that the dollar above 98 on the March contract is a very important technical breakout, and it's really the same line as the 110 on the euro. We're seeing breakdown on the euro, breakout on the dollar index, and I think what this is is the dollar market gets it, as do commodity markets, that you've got to believe that there's going to be a big safety trade into U.S. dollars. I think the U.S. dollar is likely to move much higher, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, that's all based on my very non-consensus view that the coronavirus story is dramatically mispriced in terms of market risk. If I'm wrong about this, which is what everybody else seems to think, then my view on the dollar probably becomes invalid. All right. Well, let's move on to crude oil because uh, we obviously had some pretty intense selling for the last three weeks, but uh, it's, it's trying to bounce off the 50 line there. What's your take on uh, the price action in crude? Well, I'm going to save most of the fundamental analysis for the feature interview with Art Berman because, of course, he's an oil guy. So briefly, inventory-wise, crude oil building 3.4 million barrels, Cushing, Oklahoma building 758,000 barrels, gasoline drawing down 91,000 barrels, distillates drawing down 1.5 million barrels. Overall, Patrick, what we saw was a build in crude oil inventories that was not as big as the expectation that was set by API. But I think more importantly, Patrick, the rally in crude oil prices echoing the rally in stocks was already underway on the, I think, very incorrect perception that coronavirus has been cured. And that really seemed to overshadow inventory. I want to make one correction. You'll hear in the feature interview with Art Berman. I say in that interview that as we were taping that interview, a headline flashed across my screen saying the OPEC meeting had come to an end with no agreement on a deeper production cut, which was going to be discussed in today's OPEC meeting. Now, that was this morning when we were recording the interview with Art Berman. Just around 2.15 Eastern time, another headline flashed by saying OPEC has agreed on a 600,000 barrel per day cut that's starting immediately through June. This is a proposal that was agreed to by someone in OPEC to be voted on by the full OPEC organization. So in other words, they didn't impose a cut. They didn't announce that a cut is happening. They said they had agreed on a proposal that the members would have to vote on. So it, it's you know not a deal. It's a, it's a deal to make a proposal to have a deal. Frankly, why wouldn't they have announced that when the meeting first ended hours earlier? Uh, I think the answer for why they waited till 7 in the evening and they're 
local time zone was because they wanted the headline to come out 15 minutes before the futures close at 2.30 this afternoon. So it doesn't sound to me like it really means a whole lot, but that has changed since what I announced during the interview with Art Berman. Patrick, I'm just going to leave it there and leave the rest for the discussion with Art Berman as we're going to spend most of the show talking about crude oil. All right, well, let's get to gold then, because gold, it looked like it was edging higher for that 1600 breakout. We're, we're pausing. I don't, wouldn't call this any real technical damage yet, but uh, it doesn't seem like gold is getting any traction. What's your take on all of this? Well, Patrick, we've finally seen a break in that recent short-term uptrend, which I say is great news for us long-term gold bulls. And I am definitely very, very bullish in the long term for gold. But a healthy bull market in anything needs pullbacks and corrections. And we've been up so much so fast recently. What you don't want to see if you're bullish is a parabolic rise, because that's a setup for a blow-off top like we just saw in Tesla. So I'm really hoping that there's more downside here. What would be best, as far as I'm concerned, for us gold bulls is a significant correction all the way down, ideally, to 1377, which would be the top of the previous breakout zone. That would technically clean up the chart, and it would really set the stage, pave the way for a healthy climb into the $2,000, $3,000 range, which is where I think that we're ultimately headed. Uh, I hope we get a pullback first. It will strengthen the market technically as we eventually move higher. So, Eric, let's talk the 10-year Treasury yields, because certainly if the coronavirus is going to slow global economic growth, it certainly leaves the window for disinflationary pressures and yields to be considerably lower. Do you think uh, we're going to break that 150 level in the 10-year Treasury yield? Not just 150, but I would say whatever that previous low was from 2016. Is it 134, 132, something like that? Uh, I think we go even lower than that if and only if I'm right about the coronavirus. I sure hope to be wrong, folks, about the coronavirus, but I think everybody's acting like it's blown over and it's no big deal. It's true that it looks like it's not as deadly as we thought it was, but that doesn't mean it's not going to completely screw up the global economy. So this week's featured interview guest is Art Berman. Why did we get Art back as quickly as we did? Patrick, as our regular listeners know, Art Berman is one of our all-time favorite guests. He's a favorite among listeners. And with the coronavirus story pending, we've got to focus on the markets that are going to be most directly impacted. Certainly, the oil market is one of them. Art is an expert on oil markets, and I wanted to get his take, both in terms of what's going on with comparative inventory and also what his take is on the coronavirus. So I really enjoyed taping this interview with Art, and I think you're going to to enjoy it as well. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. In the past, the founder and host, Niels Kastrup Larsen, has provided Macro Voices listeners with some really good resources. But I think you'll agree with me that this time he's really outdone himself with a brand new third edition to his Ultimate Guide to Systematic Trading Books. Now, this latest edition isn't limited to just quant trading books. It's actually a comprehensive guide to many of the best investing books ever written. And right now, Macro Voices listeners can get a free copy of this excellent guide to all the best investing books by going to toptradersunplugged.com 
forward slash macro guide. And if you haven't heard it yet, be sure to listen to my full-length interview with Niels Kastrup-Larsen on trend following. The download link is in your research roundup email. Check out toptradersonplug.com today. You'll be glad you did. Eric's interview with Art Berman is coming up as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. And now with this week's special guest, here's hedge fund manager, Eric Townsend. Joining me now is petroleum geologist, Art Berman. And regular listeners already know it wouldn't be an Art Berman interview without an Art Berman slide deck. You'll find the download link for the Art Berman slide deck in your research roundup email. If you don't have a research roundup email, that means you're not yet registered at macrovoices.com. So just go to our homepage, macrovoices.com. Look for the red button that says looking for the downloads next to Art's picture. Art, it's great to get you back. Before we dive into your excellent slide deck, I want to start with the big picture. First of all, I want to congratulate you. When we last had you on the show just before Christmas, you were getting very, very sharply criticized for an article you had just published called The Oil Rally Won't Last. And at that point, we're at $61. A whole bunch of people were saying, hey, uh, we're headed to 90. You know, this this is it. This is the big one. You said maybe 63, and it's going to roll over. And I think we ended up with what was the high, 6305 or something. So you blew it by a nickel. Uh, not not quite up to your... Sorry. <laughs> not quite up to your, uh, your past uh, perfection. But that was before any of this coronavirus stuff hit the tape, so to speak. Since then, not only did we see the market sell off, as you predicted it would, back down to the fair value that you calculate using your comparative inventory modeling system, you said it would probably overshoot to the downside. Now, that was all before we knew about coronavirus. My question to you before we get into the slide deck is, how do you see this whole coronavirus thing? Uh, A lot of people have criticized me, too, thinking that I'm overblowing this. Uh, I think it's a really big deal. We just had the stock market in the last couple of days rally to new all-time highs because of a headline, or at least it appears that the proximal cause was a headline saying, don't worry, it's cured. And, And in reality, you know, somebody's got progress that they're making on uh, treatment. I, I don't think anything has been cured. WHO still confirms that it is still considered an untreatable disease, uh, and it's spreading exponentially. So how do you see this? Is this a big deal for the oil market, or is this something that the oil market just sort of freaked out about and is about to get over? Eric, I, I think that this coronavirus is is a huge deal, and I'm concerned Based on your question, I I don't think that just the oil markets are going to be tremendously affected. I I worry that that this could have uh, terrible consequences for the whole global economy. And what I want to say first and foremost is that we got a lot of people talking as if they they have some kind of uh, calibration as to what this this disease is about and where it's going and et cetera. And, you know, we all pay attention to the World Health Organization and there are not numbers and everything. But my take is we don't know anything. I mean, really, except that it's very real. It's pretty big. 
and nobody really understands where it's going and, and how it's going to affect things. So what I've prepared and we'll talk about in a few minutes are just some mechanical models where I've played around with some of the ranges of changes in supply and demand for oil that various agencies and consultancies have put out there. And those yield a certain effect. But but what those don't do is to account for sort of the feedback loops and what some people are calling knock-on effects that reverberate through the economy, which you know, could make these numbers really, really, really small, if not trivial, before we're done. So uncertainty is the key. I don't know the answer. I know you don't know it. And people who talk like they do, uh, beware of them because they don't either. Well, I, I couldn't possibly have said it better, Art. You and I don't know. And the people who are saying this is nothing more than a glorified seasonal flu and it's nothing to worry about – don't know what they're talking about any more than you and I do. And I think it's very irresponsible for people to be so dismissive when they don't know. <laughs> this is this is still an unknown. In any case, let's go ahead and dive into the slide deck. And I want to just mention it's not in the slides because the news just came out for our listeners in the few minutes that we started recording that the OPEC JTC, which is the Joint Technical Committee meeting, has concluded and they did not make a decision to go to deeper production cuts. Russia was favoring maybe extending the existing production cuts. It sounds to me like what the real bottom line is, is they've already got a regularly scheduled meeting planned on March 5th and 6th. The outcome of today's meeting was we're going to wait until March 5th before we take any action on deeper cuts. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, OPEC will respond if they need to, to worsening market conditions. But for the moment, that's the, the news update. Let's Let's go ahead and dive in, starting on page two here. Talk us through what's going on in the slide deck. Right. And, and just to follow on your comment before I do that, prices were up and now they're down. So, so the markets are, as, as we might have predicted, they've already begun reacting to that news. So slide number two is, again, just a mechanical model doesn't deal with feedback loops that are hugely important and totally unpredictable. And all I did here was I said, all right, let's, let's reduce oil demand by half a million barrels per day every quarter in 2020. And let's assume, and now we know this is at least for now, not, not going to happen, a 200,000 barrel per day OPEC cut beginning in Q2. So, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. That translates to uh, 150,000 barrel per day average 2020 cut. And then all I did was impose that on the, the integrated model that I use that takes all of the IEA, OPEC, and EIA supply demand, uh, supply consumption data, and bingo, what we end up with is, you know, not a terrible picture. It, it says that on average for 2020, we're a little bit oversupplied, have a little bit of a, of a, of a production surplus. Uh, demand growth is, is low, 0.73 million barrels per day growth, but, you know, hardly catastrophic and, and not particularly out of the, the ranges that we've, we've seen over the last several years. So that's, that's, that's kind of uh, model run number one. And, and again, 
my point here isn't that there's nothing to worry about. My point is that, you know, if, if, if we could, if we could figure this out just by changing a few numbers, it says that the picture doesn't change dramatically. Now, before we dive into slide three, which is really the same model with different input parameters, give us the backstory here. Why did you choose the specific input parameters that you've got on slide two, and why did you choose different ones on slide three to get that comparison? Uh, good question, Eric. So there, there are all sorts of, of ranges of demand change that are out there. You know, I think you know OPEC is talking about something like two hundred thousand barrels per day. BP is is uh, is the the standard that I, I use. They're saying half a million barrels per day, and uh, you know the the talk before today's news was that OPEC might cut another 600,000 barrels per day, which even if they decided to do that, I don't really believe they're going to deliver on, and they're certainly not going to deliver on it well at all in Q1. And, and so I just just played with those numbers. And, and so the difference then in, in slide number three is that Wood McKenzie, the consultancy, which generally does a pretty competent job in my opinion, they said in an article I just read this morning that the demand reduction for Q1 of 2020 might be 900,000 barrels per day. So I said, okay, let's reduce it by 900,000 barrels per day in Q1 and then go back to the 500,000 barrels per day for Q2 through Q4. And then let's assume that OPEC does exactly what they at least appear to have done today and, and maybe in March too, which we don't know, and, and they don't cut it all. And if that occurs, then, you know, still not a, not a, a horrible catastrophic result. We end up with demand growth of 0.63 million barrels per day, which is, you know, disappointing for sure. But we only end up with a, an annual average supply balance of 320,000 barrels to the, to the excess. So, Again, these are these are just numbers to play with so that we have some calibration. And and the honest truth of why I did this, Eric, is because I haven't seen anybody else do it. I mean, I'm sure that people have done this internally in their own companies and organizations, but so far all we've heard is demand, 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 and, and we don't know what it means. And other than OPEC cuts, we haven't heard anything about supply. And nobody said where their data comes from. So I'm putting it out there. This is where my data comes from. People can check it. People can, you know, go to these various sources and do their best at integrating the way I have. But it, it, it gives us a place to start talking. And, that, and that's why I did it. Not because it's right. Moving on to slide number four, I, I just want to point out before we dive into the details here, when we last spoke to you around Christmas, we were right at the uh, right edge of the slide here. We were at $61. You said at the time, this rally is not going to last. You said maybe 63 before it rolls over. Congratulations on there. But uh, my first question on this slide is, did you expect before we got the coronavirus news the magnitude of move all the way from one standard deviation above all the way down to the lower standard deviation line? And of course, now we're below it. Or were you thinking we were just going to overshoot slightly on the mean line? Well, the way the the way that markets work in you know, my experience is 
you know, we got a bunch of traders out there that are that are discovering what the appetite is for, you know, for contracts on the other side and, and, and they'll push it as far as they can go. So simple answer is I would not have predicted that it went to fifty dollars, but it doesn't surprise me that it has. I mean, because it's it's always about overreaction by the market because traders are trying to figure out you know, what's reasonable. So the whole reason that I put out these charts showing these standard deviation and mean limits is, again, to provide some calibration, not that these are, you know, necessarily hard and fast or even true. They're just, you know, statistically, where are we? So so the point, I guess, the, the you know, the answer is we really haven't, we haven't busted the <laughs> the lower limit. But yes, we undershot farther than I imagined we would. Okay, Art, I just wanted to start by establishing that, you know, we're in a fairly predictable pattern, which has persisted for quite some time. You can look back to October 3rd of 2019, the, the low there, the September of 2019. You can look at all of these different points and you see that there has been a fairly predictable cycle here of up and down between the upper and lower standard deviation limits, and we're just below it now. So the real question on my mind is, okay, I suppose one side of this argument could be, hey, markets tend to you know, overreact and get full of emotion and so forth. But at the end of the day, this is a pretty darn reliable model. What we should be looking at is we're below that lower standard deviation line. And that means it's time to uh, cover your shorts, start buying here, and expect the, the price to go back up to the upper standard deviation line over the next few months. Now, the other side of that argument would be, wait a minute, we didn't have a coronavirus when these other things happened. So would you, based on your experience, would you say, okay, it's, this thing's done here? Or would you say that it could be it's just getting started, depending on how the coronavirus turns out? Again, back to... To our earlier comments, I don't know. But having said that and wanting to respond to your question, I would really be surprised if it's done and we're going up. I mean, this that's part of the reason I, I, I show this longer time period on this graph, because if I just show the you know, the last couple of months, it looks like, oh, wow, yesterday was a big turnaround. You can see here, uh, yeah, not so much. But back to the to the basics, there's so much uncertainty in the system at the moment. I mean, if the coronavirus got cured, if they found a cure tomorrow, which is not going to happen, we still have absolutely no way of of being able to predict when it gets contained, uh, you know, with all this exponential growth that's showing up in all kinds of different countries. We really have – I have certainly – no no way of measuring what the so-called knock-on effects or how long it's going to take for the oil market or the global economic markets in general to recover assuming we can you know we could we can make a mark and say okay it's going to get better from here but my point is we don't know that i mean there's absolutely no no way to to know i mean so bottom line is I would expect it's going to get worse, regardless of uh, of hope and uh, you know or fear. I, I just think that that we just don't know how this thing can possibly be contained or or what its outcome will be. So I expect that 
that we've, we've busted that lower standard deviation limit, whatever that means. And, uh, it would actually surprise me if, if we didn't get down closer to the December 2018 $42, $43 limit. And, you know, and who knows, maybe lower, but that's my guess, Eric. Well, we're very much in agreement there. And again, I don't know any more than you do how this is going to turn out. But what I do feel that I know with certainty is that a lot of people in the marketplace are too complacent. They're assuming that it's all going to be fine. It's just a seasonal flu. It's not a big deal. And and I just don't think the facts and evidence support those conclusions. Moving on to slide number five, what we're looking at here is a comparison of the price, which is the the lower chart in brown, of the the price of WTI crude oil, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil. The top chart is showing the time spreads, the difference between the price of the first month and the price of the 12th month. And I just want to insert here as an oil trader, my personal opinion is the spreads tend to tell a more convincing story than the front month price. The front month price can get monkey hammered around by hedge funds that are not really oil traders, by retail traders, by people reacting to headlines. The people trading the time spreads tend to be professional oil traders who understand the market pretty darn well. So I just wanted to insert that little bit of background for our listeners. What are these charts telling you in terms of what's happening with both the price and the 12-month time spreads in the wake of this news uh, ever since the coronavirus thing has become an issue? Well, Eric, you know, you, you've stated it better than, than I could as to what, what really means something versus what means a little bit less something perhaps. But what I take from this chart is that the 12-month spreads have not gotten to their lower limit yet, if that means anything at all. In other words, the spreads, if, if we allow that the, the 12-month spreads might decline as much as the front-month price – then uh, we're not there yet. And, and if, if those react as, as you and I think they very likely may, then the price is going it, to, it's going to track it. I mean, that's just, that, that's what it does. So it becomes, you know, which, which one of these, which one of these data series leads the other. And, and I think the 12 month spread leads the front month price. So, uh, so we got a lot farther to go. And the other thing that I think it shows is that the, the price reversal looks more dramatic than the spread reversal yesterday. That's you know one data point. But you know, we, we can say that yeah, yesterday was was a pimple. Uh, it was, you know, it was insignificant in terms of of what happened to the spread. So so that's my take. My take is that this reinforces the points that you and I have have agreed on so far, which is it's it's as likely that we ain't seen nothing yet as it is that you know, the mainstream view is, okay, it's over. I, I absolutely don't believe that, but it reinforces the fact that we probably ain't seen nothing yet. Now, a lot of people use charts like this, Art, with the 12-month spread. And as we look at this, we see from $5.59 back on January 6th all the way down to $0.13. Cents. That's a really big move. But it's still a positive number, which means that the market is in backwardation, not contango. And a lot of people will look at this number and they'll say, okay, look, we're not in contango yet. The flip into contango would be the telltale sign that 
spread traders really think something is wrong. One of the things I really enjoy about your work, Art, is you don't just leave it at this chart. Moving on to slide number six, you're showing the full term structure. And if we look back to that January 3rd, the orange line at the top, you can see that the term structure is in backwardation all the way from the very first month, all the way out pretty much to the end of the curve. And backwardation, of course, is that downward sloping line where each successive price is lower than the one before it. As we look at the more recent curves, particularly the February 5th in red at the bottom, you can see the first five months of the curve are now and have been for more than a week now in a fairly significant contango for the first five months. But if it's the first five months and then you've got six months or seven months of backwardation before you get to that 12-month point, it still looks on that 12-month chart as if we're not in contango yet. But in reality, we do have contango at the front of the curve, and it's not just the first month. It's the first five spreads at the front of the curve that have moved into contango. So what does this tell you? Where are we headed? And how do you interpret this? Sure. So the way I interpret this is, I mean, let's just look at, at the, the bottom three, the 24th in green, the 31st in the dash black, and yesterday's uh, February 5th in red. And what that shows me is that things are getting progressively worse uh, with each successive forward curve, that that the price is, is going down, but more significantly, uh, January 21st, 4th rather, you know, we were kind of in a flat situation for the first month or two before it went into backwardation. 31st, we had a few months of contango, then it went into backwardation. Yesterday, we had many months of of contango. And, and, and more importantly, I think, is, is the the, the way the three curves cross each other out there past one year, and, and we know that there's not a lot of volume, not a lot of liquidity out there, but those are sort of telltale signs that, you know, that again, the I mean, the whole thing is shifting. The front end is moving down and the back end is moving up. So so to me, I mean, we're, we're looking at, a, at, at a, a very significant and progressive change in term structure that says, wow, what has to happen to cause this to turn around? And the answer is, I don't know, but it looks to me like the truth of the, of, of the total forward curve is markets are, are, are battening down the hatches and preparing for the worst. And we're hearing about, about you know, traders looking into leasing floating storage, <laughs> anticipating that there's just going to be you know, a, a lot of excess supply and no place to put it. Art, I couldn't agree more, and I'll just point out uh, a couple of other things. If I look at, say, the January 3rd curve at the top in orange, that's what we call structural backwardation, meaning the entire curve is in backwardation. It's a, it's a downhill ride all the way from the beginning to the end. Well, how do you get from that to structural contango, where the entire curve is an uphill climb from the front month all the way out? through the back of the term structure. The answer is it always starts 
with exactly what we're seeing here first. It starts with a flattening like you see around January 17th, where you don't really move into contango. But the first few months that we're in backwardation just go flat, and then the backwardation starts. And then you get a little bit later, like we see on January 24th, where there's just a tiny bit of contango at the very front of the curve. Just the first spread is in contango. The rest of it is pretty much, there's a flat period, then backwardation. Now, February 5th, you're seeing the beginning of this uphill, and the way this would get from here to an outright structural contango would be the front month price keeps falling. Think of it like it's pulling that left little diamond there above the B in February down, and eventually that hump comes out of the curve, and you're just looking at a straight uphill ride into structural contango. I think that's where we're headed, and uh, if that's the case, it changes a lot of dynamics. As you say, suddenly storage becomes uh, much more premium. I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether the storage accumulates in Cushing, Oklahoma, the way it used to, because what's happened since the last time that the market had an abundance of extra oil where storage and storage capacity were an issue. It's been a whole bunch of changes in the pipeline infrastructure. So the old assumption that we had is, oh boy, market's slowing down. That means inventory is going to pile up in Cushing, Oklahoma specifically. I'm not so sure that it's Cushing, Oklahoma, where the inventory piles up this time. What are your thoughts, Art? Right. Well, before I answer that, let's go back to a, a comment, maybe the last comment you made on the previous slide, which is, oh, well, we're, you know, we're not in, we're not in contango, 12 month contango yet. Well, actually, day before Tuesday, the fourth, we were. Okay. So we got into negative 12 month spread. And then we had that little glimmer of hope yesterday that, that moved it up to whatever it was, 13 cents. So it moved it back into backwardation. But yeah, I, I, I'm watching Cushing really carefully. It, it, it's a little bit of a, a buffered system that we're looking at right now, Eric. And, and so I don't know that, that the signal is going to be very clear on Cushing for several weeks. And the reason I say that is that U.S., both crude oil and crude plus refined product inventories have fallen the last several weeks. And looking into the details of that, what's kind of driving that right now is that U.S. refiners have moved into maintenance season. And uh, a lot of people, you know, maybe they, they pay attention to that once we're deeply into maintenance and, and, and intakes are way down. But, but, but we rolled over into maintenance last week. And so that got expressed, it gets expressed in a couple of ways. That, that, that drives more withdrawal from crude. And the other thing that, that was really interesting in yesterday's storage report is that net product imports jumped a lot. Okay. So what that says is, is that we are, we are apparently, the refineries are, are shutting, are closing or are slowing their intake of crude. But perhaps, uh, well, we're, we're exporting less is, is, is the bottom line. 
And possibly that's because uh, domestic consumption is up, although, you know, one of the charts, a couple of the charts I put out yesterday, consumption is a mess. I mean, EIA is really having a hard time keeping track of domestic consumption. It's been jumping up and down by 8, 10, 15 million barrels a week, which we know is just, it's not real. But anyway, the, so, so back to your, your initial question. Yes, I'm, I'm keenly watching Cushing, Oklahoma inventories and comparative inventories. But because of this coincidence of refinery maintenance beginning, I, I'm not confident that I'm going to see that effect immediately. So far, Art, we've been talking about West Texas Intermediate Crude, which, of course, is the U.S. benchmark. Let's talk about some of the same figures as they apply to Brent, which is the North Sea European and and generally regarded as the worldwide oil benchmark. How do both the price numbers and the spread numbers in terms of those time spreads look on Brent? That's, of course, on slide seven. Yeah, slide seven, Eric, to me is is telling a really important story. So what, what what this chart really screams out at me is looking at the 12-month spreads uh, from Monday or Tuesday, we were at 390, dropped in a matter of one or two days all the way down to negative nine cents. So we went clear into Contango. I mentioned that the, a similar thing happened with WTI uh, a few comments ago. Here we went back up a little bit into into backwardation, but but the difference and and the and the significance is that drop is is almost a vertical line straight down, and I mean it, it jumped out at me when I when I made this chart so much that I went back and rechecked the data even though I knew that there was really no way the data was wrong just because it's it, it's so well it's it's just so shocking. And, and of course, the, the price did the same. So I've been watching the way that Brent has responded, both in terms of spreads and price compared to WTI. And for the last several weeks, I mean, really since uh, uh, near the end of last year, Brent has not been as, as strongly affected in either area as WTI. WTI has really taken it in the shorts much more than than Brent and I don't particularly have an explanation for that maybe you do I'm I'm sure Chris Cook does that you know maybe it's it's rigged or something but now all of a sudden just this week we're seeing Brent adjust and and go to exactly the same place that WTI does so back to the points that both of you and I made on the on the the forward curves this thing is now in full swing and both both markets, Brent and WTI, are are heading in a parallel direction, which is not good as far as price goes, if unless you like low price. And let me just put a little more perspective on this in terms of how you can interpret this chart, because just as you said, Art, this just jumps off the page to me. But that's because I'm used to looking at price and time spread next to each other every day. Listeners, if you see the 58 spot 16 print at the bottom right end of the chart here, just just to up and uh, left from where it says February 3rd of 2020, and you see that sudden jump all the way from 58.16 right down to 53. 96. So that's, uh, you know, more than a $4 jump there. Boy, is is that just 
a bunch of retail traders in the USO ETF panicking, or could there be something real to this? The way you tell is you look at what the time spreads are doing, because even though the front month price can easily be subject to panic impacts from inexperienced traders, the guys trading the time spreads know what they're doing. They're not going to panic unless there's a reason to panic. What we see in this chart is they didn't just panic. They panicked more than the front month price guys did, all the way up from 390 down to minus spot 09 on that 12-month Brent spread. So the fact that the curve is falling faster than the front month price says to me that the smartest traders are more concerned than the marketplace on whole. And that's very much in line with my big picture view of this, which is I think we've got a lot of complacency in the system because a whole bunch of people are saying, don't worry, it's just a a bad seasonal flu. In reality, I think it's going to prove to be a lot more. It may be that, that not a whole lot of people die. We're getting more and more news that suggests that the death rate may not be as high as originally feared. But in terms of economic impact, it doesn't matter. If everybody's afraid to travel and canceling their airline flights, we've got a problem, Houston, when it comes to oil. doesn't matter whether the death toll is not as bad as we thought. If there is a pandemic that is spreading rapidly, it's going to affect travel. It's going to affect oil prices. So this chart, I agree with you so far, is the one that really jumps off the page for me. Let's keep the discussion going, though, and move into Brent time spreads. There's a little bit of background for our listeners. Because of the storage in Cushing, Oklahoma, it's much easier for the WTI curve to move into Contango at the front end of the curve. Brent usually doesn't do that unless there's an awfully good reason for it. And boy, what do we see here on February 5th? Take it away, Art. Yeah. So the first thing that jumped out at me last week, last Friday or Saturday morning when I plotted up the January 31st forward curve, the one that's in black with the the dashed lines, is, okay, great, you know, price fell a few bucks, but how weird that the that the first couple of months of the of the spread steepened. In fact, it, you know, the the backwardation from where it says 5816 down to the inflection point a few you know, a month or two later, uh, it's the steepest anywhere on the chart. I mean, that's like a, you know, a super backwardation. So I, I scratch my head and say, wow, what the, what the heck does that mean? And then, of course, plotting up uh, yesterday's February 5th, lo and behold, uh, the world changed again. And for reasons that you can explain better than I will or can on the difference between WTI and Brent, we moved into into a, a contango situation, which is is certainly not as profound or impressive as WTI, but everything else about it is the same, which is to say that not only have we gone from super short-term backwardation to contango, but I mean, the whole curve has has shifted around. The bottoms moved down, the tops moved up, and there's very, very little backwardation all the way out into, you know, towards the end of, of 2021. So this to me says, wow, I mean, something something very, very profound potentially is going on. Our markets are reacting with a clear eye towards the possibility that something super profound is happening, I guess is a better way to put it. 
I couldn't agree more, Art, and just to expand a little bit for the benefit of our listeners, the reason these curves are different is the WTI curve is based on the U.S. system where there's a big storage facility in Cushing, Oklahoma. The futures contracts are settled in Cushing, Oklahoma, and any actual physical deliveries occur from that storage facility. What that means is even though contango and backwardation historically kind of have a, a meaning in terms of supply and demand, they also have an influence or they are greatly influenced at the very front of the curve by the excess capacity, the spare capacity of storage in Cushing, Oklahoma. The Brent curve doesn't have any storage facility. You know, there's no, there's no big tanks in the middle of the North Sea. So there is no impact of the storage facility and the storage premium creating contango at the front of the curve. When the Brent curve goes into contango at the front of the curve, it means exactly what it sounds like it means, which is the market is now switching from a concern about scarcity to a concern about excess and not being able to get rid of the oil as opposed to not being able to find enough oil in order to satisfy demand. So the fact that we see that little bit of uphill on the February 5th line on the bottom left of this chart on page number eight really jumps off the page for me. Let's move on to page number nine. What's going on here, Art? Well, this is just a, a way of, of comparing the, the term structures for for Brent over the last two weeks with with that for WTI. And, you know, I really don't don't have a lot to say about this, except um, that it, it, it allows us to to compare and contrast on the same chart. Moving on then to slide number 10, we're looking at a comparison of the path that Brent and WTI have taken over the last several months, both in terms of price and in terms of the spreads. What do you make out of this chart and what conclusions does it bring you to? Right, Eric. So let me let me emphasize before I answer your question that price is price, but the spreads, I've normalized them. Okay. So I've I've scaled them so that the lowest point is zero and the highest value is one so that we can accommodate the, the, the variance and look at them scaled the same way. So what this shows you is a point that I made earlier, which was that up until really the, the, the latter part, the very last part of 2019, WTI spreads were actually showing more improvement than Brent. And, you know, these things flip around. And then where we see the the black dot with the one above it, that's where Brent reached its maximum. And right next door to it, to the right, the red dot and the one is where WTI maxed out. And then as, as they both started falling, what we see is that the WTI normalized spreads now are disadvantaged relative to Brent. And, you know, that was the point I was making, that that ever since prices, uh, looking at the top two curves, early January, once prices peaked, it appeared that that Brent was not being, you know, as, as strongly affected, at least in terms of spreads, as WTI. But then, lo and behold, back to our discussion of the of the the previous spread chart on Brent you know we've got that that vertical line that just you know that just falls out of the sky and and both 
WTI and Brent normalized spreads reached their lowest point of, you know, of, of the last year and a half on exactly the same day, which was February 4th. And then they both jump up a little bit. So what this tells me more than anything else is whatever advantage Brent had for the last five weeks or so, it's over. Both markets are now in complete agreement that we've reached a a multi-month or 12-month low, actually, on both WTI and, and Brent, which goes back to your observation that everybody's very, very concerned that's pay, who are paying attention to these spreads. Moving on to slide 11, Art, we're getting into your comparative inventory model, which really is uh, the center of what you do and what you're famous for. For any newer listeners who are not already familiar with the comparative inventory model and what it means, we're not going to really go into a lot of detail because we just don't have time to do that today. However, I strongly encourage any new listeners to go back. Just put Art Berman's name into the search box at macrovoices.com. Look for the first two or three interviews that we did with Art now a few years ago. We get into a, I think there's a, one of those interviews is a full interview just on the subject of the comparative inventory model and why it is the most effective way to model oil prices. For listeners who have at least some familiarity with this, let's go ahead and dive in. What is the comparative inventory model telling you now, Art? So the simple story on comparative inventory, so everybody's on the same proverbial page, is all I'm doing here is plotting the current storage level of WTI crude and refined products minus the five-year average versus the spot price. That, that's how this thing works. And so what, what this is showing me is that we, we have a, a, the, the blue line is a, a relatively consistent fit. It's not meant to be a mathematical regression, but it is a fit that, that connects pretty much everything in 2019, 2020. And, and in truth, it, it's probably good back at least to, to 2016 or 17. And what's happened is that we were, we were pretty much above the line, above the fit line, the blue line for many, many weeks. And over the last two weeks, we've dropped down below. So the, the yellow or the orange dot is two weeks ago. That's the 24th. And the, the yellow dot is the 31st, which is the result of yesterday's EIA storage report. So what this is showing is that if we believe that, that we're still calibrated to that blue line, that the, the front month price as of yesterday, when I, when I made this chart of $51 would, that would say, wow, we're $9 undervalued based on the comparative inventory yield curve. I do believe that that is, that is true. But what I see, have seen over the years is that, you know, that it's not unusual when markets get into heavily sentiment influenced, uh, price discovery for there to be, uh, big excursions from this line. And, and several of those are circled in red. And, and some people say, oh, well, you know, that shows that the comparative inventory model is no good because it's not a mathematical regression. I argue quite the contrary. I think those excursions are at least as important 
as as the points that plot on the curve because those are as i said before that that's the way markets figure out what the right price ought to be they overshoot they undershoot and they see at some point okay nobody's willing to to buy this contract whether it's a you know whether it's long or whether it's short and that's when things calibrate back to the line so bottom line here is if we compare where we are today or where we were as of yesterday's storage report, the the yellow circle, and we compare that with December 28th of 2018, uh, the 4526, we're heading in that direction. And and we can talk more, if, if you like, about why this excursion is as great as it is. But for those who follow my work more closely than, than others, you may recall that for a while before the, the, the recent price run up at the end of last year, I was speculating, wow, you know, we this yield curve may have been re- reset to a, a lower trajectory. And so I haven't drawn that on here because I need I need another week or two of data. But it would not surprise me if what we're going to see evolve here either is a dramatic overshoot or undershoot, depending on what the right terminology is, that we're going to be well below the yield curve line for a while, or that the market is in the process of, of devaluing WTI just as it did after the, the price collapse in 2014-50. So it's, it's unknown right now where we're going, but my sense is the, the trend is clear. We're going down. Price is going down, even though it's going down a lot more than its movement in comparative inventory would suggest. In other words, January 31st should have been right next, right just to the left of January 24th, the orange line. And instead, the price has pulled it down. And that's the trend that I expect to see more of in coming weeks. Art, there's a lot to unpack in terms of interpreting this chart. In the interest of objective journalism, I want to cover this from both angles, both people who agree with us and people who disagree with our view that this coronavirus thing is not over yet. So what we're really seeing here is that $60 is what the yield curve is valuing, the fair value of WTI, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil. $60, we're uh, almost $9 below that right now which means that if it turns out that you and I have this wrong and the mainstream media has it right and the coronavirus is nothing more than just a seasonal flu on steroids and it's it's just nothing to worry about, it's all going to blow over soon, really what we should expect is probably a, uh, a retracement of price back up toward that $60 mean. And hey, you know, if we tend to overshoot numbers, that would suggest maybe you, you go back up to 61 or 62, overshooting that fair value before it comes back down to it again. On the other hand, if you and I have this right and the coronavirus thing is a big deal, then the way you have to look at this is to say, okay, in past history, when there have been deviations from the yield curve based on news events and and various factors affecting the market, how far do they typically go? 
Well, the price deviation that happened Christmas of 2018 appears to have been driven primarily by changes in Iran policy. That was a significant geopolitical change. I don't think it was as big of a deal as the coronavirus. That took us all the way down to $45, as you see on the red dot there. At that point, that was probably, what, about $13 below the yield curve line. But if I look over at the late 2015, early 2016, when we had kind of the bottom of the oversell event, which occurred after the Saudi change of policy in 2014, at that point, we're getting to, uh, I'm just eyeballing, it looks to me like about $20 below the yield curve. So would I be correct, Art, to assume that if I look at that oval on the bottom right corner of the slide, where we get down uh, just above, say, the, the AR in the word early, that bottom dot there is about as far as we've gotten away from the yield curve in the past. Would it be reasonable to say that's about as far away from the yield curve as the coronavirus ought to take us? Or is that not a fair comparison? Well, I think that's the only comparison that we have on this particular chart. I would have to go back to charts that included the 2008-2009 financial collapse if we really wanted to make a meaningful comparison because, again, you and I don't know who's right, but we happen to agree on this, and that is that the late 2015, early 2016 excursion from the yield curve was not really based on anything structural in the market except there was a whole bunch of oil piling up in places like Cushing, Oklahoma, and pessimism about Chinese economic growth and a number of other factors kind of piled on to, to move things down for a brief period down to $30 or, or even less. So let me say I, I, I agree that that's the next, the next support level, if you want to think of it that way, if we get below $45. But I want to say that there's nothing on this chart that in any way calibrates the magnitude or the potential magnitude of what this coronavirus might do to global markets. So let's just say I would not be surprised if we got to $30 again. I'm not, I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me. Unless, again, you know, you and I are just totally out to lunch on this. But the way these things typically work, if you, if you look at the number of dots in any one of these, these ovals, I mean, that each one of those is a week. And so once you've overshot or undershot, the market does not return. It doesn't uh, snap right back to the, to the yield curve in any less than, you know, six, eight, 10, sometimes 15 weeks. And so once that downward momentum gets going, even if the, the news gets very good, you know, the, the professional traders out there are going to be saying, yeah, maybe, but uh, <laughs> we're not betting on it. So once this momentum starts going down, I don't know how low it's going to go, but it isn't going to snap back in a couple of weeks. It's going to take it's probably going to take a few months, assuming that everything starts looking better right away, which I don't think it will. 
Art, so far on slide 11, we've been looking at the comparative inventory yield curve for WTI, West Texas Intermediate. Slide 12 is the same thing for Brent. In the interest of time, I don't want to go into detail on this. Our listeners can get a sense of how the Brent figures are really showing us the same thing that we're seeing in WTI. Let's move on to slide 13, where you're looking at the tight oil rig count and how it has changed direction. What's going on here? Well, this is something we've seen for a few months now, Eric, and, and I won't get into the details. The mechanics, people can look at it. I've lagged the, the rig count uh, back so that it, we, we can compare it to price. But we've seen an upturn, okay? So the, the tight oil lagged rig count has increased uh, 20 over the last two months, which is not the direction that it seemed to be heading the last time. we Well, it was it was heading slightly in that direction, but – where I take all this is is that if we if we compare this to the next slide, which shows tight oil production growth, which is slide fourteen, what it says is that at best, I think that tight oil is going to grow very very slowly. It's it's almost growing at zero, and so as a factor in in the world, we now I think can cross out the fact that that continued rapid growth of U.S. tight oil production is going to continue to be a drag on, on world, uh, world supply balance. That, that, that seems to be getting better under control. Art, we're going to have to leave it there in the interest of time. But before I let you go, first of all, for any listeners who are not familiar, the free subscription to your blog at artberman.com has got to be the, the best free resource that exists anywhere in oil markets. So if you're interested in crude oil or energy markets in general and you're not subscribed to Art's blog, you'd be crazy not to do so. But in recent years, you've also begun offering a premium service. Tell us what's involved in that and what other services you offer? So we are in the process of, of updating the website, but what you're going to be able to do is continue to get the, the stuff that's already out there. That's going to remain free. But if you want to get detail on the, the comparative inventory or the rig count or some of the charts, that's going to be like you know a $25 a month kind of fee. If you want to bundle that up with a monthly newsletter, it's going to be very slightly more. So still a very low-cost, affordable kind of monthly service that gets you past the, the, the publicly available data. So that's, that's where we're going, Eric. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Patrick Ceresna and I will be back as Macro Voices continues. And be sure to stay tuned. We've got Kevin Muir coming up to talk to us about Tesla and what's going on in the market this week. Macro Voices is a listener-driven program. Please email requests for specific future interview guests to requests at macrovoices.com. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com, and we'll answer them on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. We also welcome your suggestions for how we can improve the program. Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Eric, what a great interview with Art, but uh, joining us in the post game, we invite my good friend Kevin Muir onto the show. How are you doing, Kevin? Good. It's great to be with you guys. It's been a long time. 
Yeah, and so I wanted to uh, bring Kev onto the show because, Eric, you and I were talking about Tesla, and then I was uh, messaging Kevin about uh, this uh, idea, like, is this a top on, on Tesla, and how much did the gamma have an influence on all of this? And the moment uh, I'm chatting with Kevin, he goes, oh, it's funny, I'm about to hit send on this new blog I wrote uh, talking about this. And so I figured we'd bring you on, and we just got to talk Tesla, because this is uh, such an amazing event like i think we're going to be looking years back at this uh, chart and and this whole event and how it played out first of all kev do you think that this is a a major top in tesla already put in place i'm not sure if this is the top the one thing i did think about when i wrote that piece was that we had almost flirted with a thousand and then we had that late day sell-off and at that point it kind of dropped i don't know 100 bucks for no real reason and i thought to myself for the first time, you actually had something you could short against, meaning the old highs. Up until that, you know, until that afternoon, we just kept gapping higher and going higher and higher and higher. And shorting it was kind of foolish because there was no way. It was just clear sailing up above. So when I saw that happen, I thought, you know what? Nobody really understands why this fell so hard. I think that this is a sign that there's more selling to come. And I thought for the first time I had a technical level to lean against. And so I initiated some shorts on that, uh, that evening when it was down a hundred bucks from the close there. All right. Well, listen, I want to get to your blog and some of the things you wrote in there, but I also put together a chart book for our listeners that they can download from the Research Roundup email or find it on our website. It's called uh, Tesla Going slash Gone Parabolic. And I wanted to talk about some of these charts on here. And I wanted to just really kind of dive into this idea of how much of an influence the options market had on what happened in Tesla. And I know that you feel it's one of the contributors. You think it's a a couple of things beyond that. But I I wanted to really talk about what's been happening here. So on pages two and three, I have uh, the charts of Bitcoin and of the Tesla chart back on January 9th. So on the chart book that we shared with our Macro Voice listeners back on January 9th, we were showing how Tesla was going parabolic and how it had many similarities to the final parabolic blow-off of Bitcoin. And what's interesting on chart four is where I'm actually showing this final move. And and like uh, Eric was suggesting earlier, was, was that that just captures the closing price. It doesn't even show the fact that it traded as high as like 969 or what was the actual printed high? Was it 980 or what was? 968.99. There you go. 968.99. So, so this chart is not even showing that final $100 blow off that happened on an intraday basis. And what's particularly interesting is Julian Brigden was on the show the other week and he was making the analogy to these parabolic rises like a fighter jet kind of shooting into the stratosphere. And eventually when it goes vertical, if it, once it reaches high enough, the engine stalls because it runs out of oxygen. And that's, all these parabolic rises have that kind of a narrative. And it really feels like the engine stalled here. Well, hang on. See, I, I didn't correct Julian on this last week because it was irrelevant. But Tracy Alloway, who runs the Odd Lots podcast for Bloomberg, actually started trolling me on Twitter, claiming that she has more aviation background than other financial podcasters, which is crazy. So to correct Julian, the engine didn't stall. It flamed out. A stall on a turbojet engine has to do with the disruption of airflow in the compressor section of the engine. It's not what happened. The next thing that happened for Tesla was what's known in aviation 
as a tail slide. That's when the airplane stops in mid-flight and literally slides backwards until it gets enough airspeed to reverse direction. So that's our competition with Bloomberg. <laughs> Tracy, keep trying. <laughs> Love it. You guys can get back to the market now. <laughs> That's right. So, Patrick, one of the things that this reminded me of is when Jim Rogers talked about the parabolic gold rise in the 80s. And he, uh, he made the observation that a lot of times the final move is, is although it's short in time, it's, it's a lot as a percentage of the actual price. And he jokes and says, you know, I was uh, only two days early selling gold short. Unfortunately, it was $300 or something. And back then when gold was 800 bucks, it was a big deal. This reminded me very much of that in that it just kept accelerating and running away. And it definitely had a kind of panicky feel to it. Right. And so we've had uh, on many occasions, Charlie McElligott come on talking about uh, the gamma composition of the S&P 500 and the influence that uh, dealers have on the market. But the one thing that's interesting about Tesla is arguably the dealers were the ones on the short gamma side on the calls. And therefore, as the market is rising, they're actually contributing to the buying, acting as an accelerant. Did you you feel that that was a major contributor, don't you? For sure. I, I definitely think. And I don't even think that they're just short calls. I think they're short puts, too. I think on the whole, clients are buying protection in this in this name. And I suspect that the dealers have been forced to chase it all along. The one thing I did notice is that when the prices don't gap then the dealers actually have an opportunity to kind of hedge as the day progresses. But as we kind of got towards the final end of this, we started to see more gaps that just took off and ran away. Yeah, these $100 gaps. Just right. Like and and that right? was that was the the dealers chasing their gamut. No doubt about it. They played a, a big role at it. And I just you just had to go to the Reddit forums to see the crazy stuff. People with like retail accounts that had taken, you know, accounts of 10000 bucks and turned it into $4 million, buying kind of options that were you know $150 out of the money on Monday that closed $100 in the money by Friday. And people were making themselves absolute fortunes. And uh, I, I can't imagine the pressure. And, if they sold. <laughs> well, that's true. But the pressure on the, the dealers that had to be short all that gamma. But by the end of it, Patrick, they had cranked the implied vols to levels that, uh, you know, even with the moves, I'll bet you that we were seeing people not make any money on the correction. And one of the things that you kind of knew we might have been getting close was the final day when it was up 100 bucks. I think people were talking about the fact that even though the stock was up, you know, 10, 15%, their puts were also going up in value. And that was because you saw implied volatilities just getting cranked. So there is no doubt about it. But Patrick, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this and thinking this is the main reason for the for the buying and for the squeeze. I don't think so. The other thing is people say this was the greatest short squeeze ever, that it looks like a Volkswagen and Porsche. I don't buy that either. If you look that the short interest is being consistently going down. What I think this was was almost a synthetic short by big name kind of institutional accounts that found themselves with ESG mandates, basically you know, environmental, social governance kind of mandates, and they found themselves you know, not owning enough Tesla once the good news changed and, and the narrative changed from, oh, Elon's such a 
a kind of a wing bat to, oh, look, he's managed to do what nobody else has done in China and things are looking better. And all of a sudden it became the go-to name. Like, how can you have an ESG mandate and not have this? And I think they just came for it. And when you combine with the retail buying and then the gamma from the dealers, you created just one of the best runs in history. Right. And uh, I, I agree with you that it needs more fuel than just uh, just dealer gamma. It has, it has to have a number of forces all driving that liquidity event that, that created the melt-up. What's amazing, on I have on here on page six, was showing the, how the implied volatility spiked. And what I thought was really interesting was the little lull in implieds that occurred going into the last few days of January before the really epic melt-up run. And so we were going into Tesla's earnings and almost all of the options, particularly considerable open interest in the uh, February 7th and 14th expiries on the weeklies. Going into the earnings, you were seeing those front weeklies trading at near 100% vol premiums, right? Like in the uh, 85, 90 vol. And in traditional fashion, after an earnings announcement, volatility tends to normalize in the post-earnings period. And so we saw implied volatilities on these options pretty much almost half into the last day's of January. So uh, there were people that were able to buy options on Tesla on January 29th and 30th at like 50 vol premium. And then these things go skyrocketing into this melt up at peak. We were seeing 150 to 180 vol premiums. Isn't that insane? It is insane. The other thing about this, Patrick, is it's not a small stock. Sometimes you get these sorts of moves in uh, health, you know, a uh, a biotech stock, but it's not big like Tesla. This is, uh, you know, it's traded the most that any stock has ever traded. The amount of options that we're trading on a weekly basis is just insane, like just crazy. And I think we're going to look back, and I, I suspect that there was some probably some market makers that were short vol that are going to be carried out from this situation, unfortunately. <laughs> On, on, on stretchers, right? But uh, on um, page five, what is interesting, and I don't know, what's your take on this, Kev? Because on page five, we have showing on a bar chart where the huge open interest strikes are, right? And obviously, there's an outlier at the 1500 strike. There's a huge open interest of like close to 20,000 contracts. But there's a lot of key ones in the 600, 700, 800, and, and, and thousand strike zones. But what's amazing to me is that the purple represents the February 7th and the February 14th expiries. And when you look, that's actually the majority of all the open interest. And with these huge vol premiums, how expensive it's going to be for these traders to roll these forward. It will be really interesting to see whether we have a material uh, you know, decline in open interest levels once all of these start rolling off. Do you have a, a take uh, as to what you think will happen here? Oh, I think these people are going to get smushed in terms of the, the, the implied that are going <laughs> to come. Yeah, I, you know, you knew you knew we were getting late in the in the game when you pulled up Google and you said, "How can I?" And then it's buy Tesla options. Like literally, I think that you know, Cuppy sent us something the other day about, uh, and and that's what that's the the level that it reached. It became the most searched for item on Google. And the one thing I will say, Patrick, is this: this is. Uh, don't underestimate how much this is going to ignite people's animal spirits going forward. 
And although I don't think we're going to see a situation where Tesla doubles again, I could very well see a situation where later this year or even this summer, we get another Tesla-type situation. And I think you're going to find it's going to be in this ESG movement. I, I see today that Brookfield Energy Renewables, it's, it's exploding higher. I think that there's a real possibility that a bubble gets created in the green movement. And as much as uh, I kind of it scares me, I think back to George Soros who says, when I see a bubble, I buy it. I can't bring myself to do that, but uh, I almost wonder if that's what we're going to be seeing going forward is more Teslas, you know, as this green just kind of ignites everyone's uh, imaginations. Well, you know what? What's uh, I'm going to bring this back to you, Eric, because we were having this chat earlier in the week, and Tesla's up in the 900 plus range, and you were telling me I got to sell some naked calls up here with these vol premiums. Like you were saying, there was like you were talking about the 75 dollar premium for one week out at the thousand strike. What did you end up doing again? You raked in, didn't you? Well, yeah, I I actually was hoping that the situation was going to continue. What I did is I sold the thousand strike calls for $75, and I was hoping that what would happen is it would get over $1,000. It was a very, very short expiry. It was only about 10 days to expiration when I sold those naked calls. I was thinking I would get assigned and would therefore be short a thousand shares of Tesla from, you know, basically an entry price or a basis of 1075. And then what happened is the price pushed even another hundred dollars higher from there. The 1100 strikes got up to 75 bucks. So I sold another 10 of those thinking, well, okay, if we just hit the thousand and I get assigned on the first bunch, I'm going to have an 1125 average short for a thousand shares. And uh, if I actually got assigned on both of them, I'd have an 1125 basis shorting 2000 shares. I can live with that. And uh, I ended up keeping 100% of the the premium. So it was 150 bucks in premium. And I think they're going to expire worthless. Uh, I would have liked it better if I'd been assigned and wound up short, because I I think that it is a blow off at least short term. So I'd be just fine if we get another push higher and I get assigned. All right. Great trade there, Eric. So, but Kev, I want to go to your blog again. So, I mean, the first thing you did in the blog is you kind of tried to diminish the impact of the short squeeze, because I think you're arguing the fact that majority of the short covering actually already happened and that this is not what's driving this leg of the move. Is that correct? Or am I? I Yeah. Like I I don't buy, yes, there's some hardcore shorts that are going to stick through this, but I, I suspect that the vast majority of shorts covered and way before this final move. I think that as we push past 420 and it just became very clear that it was a mania that it was developing, people were covering anywhere from four to $600. So I, I, I would be shocked if, if the shorts were actually the big driving force of this last little bit. Kevin, I agree with what you just said, but I want to ask a question that I'm baffled by. I totally agree that the shorts got squeezed out long ago at a much lower price. But based on a number of pieces, based on my own approach, which is I I thought I was going to get short, it didn't end up working out that way, I would have expected, as we got to that magic round number level, right, just below 1,000, that short interest would have picked up and there would be a whole bunch of new shorts coming into the market now. That's not happening. Why not? Oh, because I think it's too scary. 
I think that once it hits that level, you're you're no longer a short seller from a fundamental point of view. It's you're just you're shorting his you know, like kind of just. But we're talking hysteria. about a, a stock that has open gaps all the way down to three twenty five on the chart. I mean, th- does anybody really think it's going to two thousand from here? I just think that professional short sellers are not leaning into this. I, I just don't buy that this is what they want. They much prefer the story breaking down and doing it. I, if anything, I suspect they would wait for it to settle down and they would rather be shorting it once the, the mania subsided. And what about Tesla's dependency? And this is a question. I don't know the answer, but I would have thought Tesla would be very dependent in their supply chain on China and that the coronavirus fears would therefore be quite important. And, and it doesn't seem to be hurting them at all. Well, you know, I would have thought the same about Apple as well and a million other stocks, but it doesn't seem to matter at all. And, uh, you know, I think that's a different discussion to have that maybe the market's been a little complacent about the, the actual funnel, <laughs> the <laughs> fundamental underlying economic situation. But it just, I think that what happened was that the market started looking through and saying there's going to be a big stimulus coming from China, which it did. And there was a lot of liquidity thrown at the system. And uh, not only that, on the other side of the, the monetary stimulus, I think you're going to see a lot of fiscal stimulus from China. And to some extent, you could argue as well, the fact that you had this problem in Asia, let's face it, half of Asia is holed up in their apartments right now, that uh, money is probably safest in the U.S. And you could see people selling their, you know, their emerging markets or selling their Asian stocks and, and buying U.S. stocks. So it, in fact, it, it kind of created a self-fulfilling uh, kind of positive feedback loop for stocks. And then when you combine it with the whole idea that uh, that no longer was Tesla in the penalty box in terms of, let's just say, corporate malfeasance, and uh, they, they managed to show that they were doing better and that they were a real serious firm, that all of a sudden you got this uh, big money chasing it. There's even some people have tried to argue that the, all the millions, uh, the, the tens of millions of Chinese that are in their, in their apartments are day trading Tesla. And maybe they are. What do I know? They definitely affect Bitcoin. There's no doubt about it. So I'm not sure. All right. Well, uh, you also wrote a blog piece uh, on buying the periodic table. What was your general narrative behind that? Well, I look at this kind of flu situation. I say that we're going to experience the biggest stimulus that we've ever seen. In 2008, when the world went into the great financial crisis, that was the United States that was getting into trouble. And even then, China went and did a massive, massive stimulus. This time, they're in trouble. And there's no doubt about it. Their economy's in trouble. We go look. The 2021 is their 100th year of the Communist Party. They're going to want their economy doing well. And I don't think they're going to be constrained by any sorts of kind of Tea Party members that are telling us that you can't take debt and you can't do things. So there's going to be no kind of worry from the the official party line that they're worried about doing pro-cyclical fiscal cuts, which is what happens in Western worlds. Here, when the economy goes into a tailspin, governments go and they get scared. They get scared about the deficit. They get scared about the debt, the sustainability of the debt, and they end up cutting as well. And they make a, basically a private sector retrenchment all the worse. In China, that's not going to happen. And in fact, it's going to be shocking how much they're going to send down the pipe. So I think what you're going to see is, is massive, massive fiscal stimulus, the likes that we've never seen before. 
And in doing so, they're probably going to go back to their tried and true, which is infrastructure spending, because they're going to need to put people to work. And I think we're going to see a situation very similar to the early 2000s. And yes, you might argue that it's not sustainable in the long run. And this is all, you know, bridges to nowhere and apartments that are empty could very well be. But in the meantime, you're going to see a massive boom in commodities as they come back and they put that money to work. So... Kev, what I will ask you, though, is about the timing of that, because this coronavirus could continue to potentially be an issue for weeks and months moving forward. I mean, the trade that you're talking about, is it possible that the timing of that may, you, your idea is right, but, but the real opportunity may lay many months still forward? Patrick, at which point I'll say nothing new. I'm always early. Um, <laughs> I was talking to your to your partner there, and I thought I had met the most bearish person on the uh, kind of the global economy, and I realized I hadn't because I hadn't talked to Eric in a long time. <laughs> if, if if what Eric thinks happens, I will be a hundred percent wrong, and you will be able to pick commodities up much cheaper. Like copper and oil are both down ten and twelve percent since the the start of the virus. I think that if I if what Eric is talking about occurs, then you will see them down another ten or twelve percent in a beat of an eye, and it very well could even get a lot worse. Well, now, but wait a minute, Kevin, because we we basically agree. What you're saying is there needs to be a V bottom where basically everything panics, commodities crash, and then commodities in a stimulative backdrop take off like crazy to the upside. We totally totally agree on that. I just think it's probably months away. Okay, so yes, but I, I think that uh, we've seen the worst. Oh, you think we've already seen the worst? No, we definitely don't agree on that part. And not, sorry, versus, versus expectations. That Sunday when I got onto Twitter and I saw what was going through the kind of fintwit spear in terms of how bad they thought it was, I was shocked at the bearishness. Shocked. And I went into some They're like, clueless. They're not even paying attention to the real risks. You think they're bearish? Well, so I disagree. I actually think I think sophisticated investors are very aware of it. And when you go and you talk to them, that they are going through all the numbers and they had already baked in a lot of what you're saying. I really do. I, I could be wrong. And uh, I would argue that in the last week, they've just completely sw- switched. And now we've gotten kind of a, a renewed kind of bid to everything. And they've chosen to express that by going and bidding up stocks as opposed to economically sensitive commodities like oil and, and uh, copper, because they're worried about if they're wrong. So that's the reason we haven't really got a bid to those commodities, uh, kind of uh, those economically sensitive commodities. But you think the downside so of oil and copper is over now? Because I think that the the situation versus expectations will most likely improve from here. But if I'm wrong, then I will be early. And Patrick, you're absolutely correct. I will be, you know, a month early. So if you're telling me that we're going to see a situation where this breaks out and it gets into Australia and Canada, and then all of a sudden the rest of the world is also, you know, stuck in their homes, then there's there's not a chance I'm going to be correct. And you can't basically stimulate at that point because everybody there's no economic activity. And so I 100% agree that if, if that ends up being, if everyone ends up having to follow the same role as China in, in that telling their citizens that they have to stay in their apartments, we are going to have an economic collapse and those commodities will be great shorts. I just don't think that's going to happen. And, and what do I know? I am not uh, a virus expert and, and I just, I look and I kind of try to get a sense of what the market's priced in, what they're worried about. And to me, I feel like there's a good chance that from these levels, they've priced it in. Now, maybe I'm wrong. 
That's what makes a market. Well, Kev, it's great to have you back with us on the program, and I look forward to getting you back in a few months. And uh, one of us will be right, and one of us will be wrong in terms of what comes next in this coronavirus situation. We're going to have to wrap it there, folks, in the interest of time. This episode was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. Remember to get the ultimate guide to the best investing books ever written at TopTradersUnplugged.com forward slash macro guide. For information on sponsoring Macro Voices, please visit macrovoices.com forward slash sponsor info. And of course, folks, if you have not yet done so, register for your free account at macrovoices.com. The benefit to you is you'll receive our research roundup email. It doesn't cost anything, and it provides you with links to all of the best free cool stuff that we could find on the internet each week. Patrick, tell them what they can find in this week's research roundup. Well, this week you can find the transcript for today's interview as well as the link to the chart book for Art Berman's presentation. There's also the uh, Tesla chart book that we discussed in the post game and a link to Kevin's blog on your imagination is having puppies. There's also an interesting article from uh, the Felder Report talking about Tesla is just the latest in a string of single stock manias. You'll find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. That does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we're getting from our listeners and always looking for suggestions on how we can make the program even better. Now, for those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners, send us an email at researchroundup at macrovoices.com or tag it with the MVRR hashtag on Twitter and we'll include it in our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account at MacroVoices for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric S. Townsend and myself at Patrick Serezna. On behalf of Eric Townsend and myself, thank you for listening and we'll see you all next week. That concludes this edition of MacroVoices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. 
Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com.